prophecy beginning in chapter 51 goes all the way to verse 12 of chapter 52. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm hoping to put it all together tonight. And, uh, and then verse 13 all the way through 53 is another prophecy. And uh, 53 is the prophecy that I want to give a great deal of attention to because upon what is revealed there is um, one of the most fundamental things to the Christian faith and uh, perhaps one of the most important chapters of your Bible. So, um, yeah. So, uh, real quick, we, we've been doing better as far as like um, brownie dough being smeared into the carpet uh, or into the upholstery. Uh, but I wanted to just remind parents to please police your children. Um, and children, remember, please don't bring your food into the auditorium. Uh, we give you plenty of time to stuff your face out on the tile where brownie comes up really easy. So, yeah, and so one of our guys saved it for me until last Friday, and there was a cookie crumble trail that started right here and went all the way out the door. So I don't know which parent it was. <laughs> Cookies are precious. We can't be wasting them on the vacuum cleaner. So anyway, just a reminder. Um, yeah. All right. Well, there's a lot to cover tonight. So in these chapters, uh, which is a chapter and a half, if you will, is one prophecy. And God is calling out, calling upon those among his people who follow after righteousness, who seek the Lord, who have the law of God in their hearts, who know justice. He wants them to listen to consider and to depart. Listen to him, to consider what he has done and where they've come from, and then to depart from everything that would corrupt. That'll become important at the end and has a lot of historical significance for Israel. The prophecy itself is for the, the comfort and the encouragement of faithful Israel. It applies to their troubles from the time of Isaiah to the present but it has its ultimate fulfillment just prior to the second coming. Okay? These things will be, we might say, most true for Israel um, just before the second coming. The prophecy demonstrates, and, and this is super important too, that what God has done in the past is the guarantee of what he will do in the future. It shows that not only can he intervene and deliver, but that it's his custom to do so. Okay? It's a pattern that is consistent with his character. I think, <clears throat> you know, we've mentioned before, as, as Paul declares, that when we are faithless, he remains faithful because to do otherwise would be a contradictory, it would be counter to his, his very nature. And uh, he can't do something contrary to his own nature. So, yeah. And so it's this message that his people must hear. Uh, they must consider by faith through troubling times, but especially as the end draws near to what Jeremiah calls Jacob's trouble. Okay? Of course, Jacob is Israel, and uh, he's not talking about the man Jacob, but the nation. And so anticipating this time of darkness for Jacob, and it's to these particular prophecies that they must look to, uh, to stand firm. So with that in mind, it's a lot of reading, so you're welcome to stand with me uh, as I read the text. Uh, or you can stay seated. So I'm going to read Isaiah 51 uh, through Isaiah 52, verse 12. And if you need to sit down halfway through, it's okay. All right. <clears throat> 
The Lord says, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? and of the son of a man who will be made like grass. And you forget the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he is prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth. Nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They're full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine, Thus says the Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury you shall no longer drink, but I will put it in the hand of those who afflict you, 
who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. And you've laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust, arise. Sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices, voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out with haste, nor by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Father, we thank you for your promises, we thank you for your character, and Lord, while not everything in Scripture applies directly to us, we serve the same God Your character remains the same. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you that you change not. Lord, you love us and you you do with an everlasting love. Lord, I pray that your encouragement to Israel would also encourage us. Yeah. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. All the way back to verse 1 and 2 of chapter 51. So God says, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness... You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. So God calls his people to listen to him and to look to Abraham. Now, to look in the sense means to consider, to think about, to, you know, uh, let's be rational about something that makes sense here, okay? They're to consider Abraham, not for his example, but to what God did with him. So God called him alone. That is, among all the peoples in the world, God only called Abraham, from whom all of the Jews, of course, descended. That's what he's saying in the text, okay? The rock from which you were hewn. And God called Abraham not to cast him off when he was delinquent or disobedient or unfaithful, but as he says in in Genesis chapter 12, to bless him, to increase him. And then the same blessing as we go through, especially Genesis, Genesis 12 and 15, 17, 22, and you just keep going on and on, it was transferred to Abraham's descendants, 
Okay, initially through the son of promise, who is Isaac, and that promise was then passed to Jacob, the father of the 12 patriarchs, who then the 12 tribes descended from. And that promise is to them. So God is reminding his people, clear in Isaiah's day, of his ancient, unconditional, unilateral promise to their father Abraham. This applies to them. Okay? Regardless of what they were experiencing or what is on the horizon, God's promise stands. Amen? Stands. He says, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He'll make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. So now up to this point, only the northern kingdom of Israel has been laid waste in, in, at this time in Israel's history. The southern kingdom had suffered a blow uh, from the Assyrians, but it compared nothing uh, to what's coming from uh, the Babylonians and what they will do. Okay? But regardless of what happens to Israel uh, or who it is that conquers them, God will fulfill this promise. So from and that's always the problem, is it the human perspective? What we're currently experiencing is always the worst thing. It's always something that will never end. It's something that's going to defeat us. It's going to bring us down. But from the heavenly perspective, God is like, what are you talking about? The, the promise in Genesis 12 is completely unaffected by Israel's behavior, Israel's circumstances, and all of that. Regardless of what happens, his promise Stand. He says, I will comfort my people Zion. I'll renew the land to, and here's interesting, an Edenic state. How many of you guys have been to Israel? How many of you guys have seen photographs of Israel before they began to cultivate the land? It's ugly. The Muslims used to tax people for having trees. So if you're taxed for something, what do you do? You cut it down. Okay? So they just about wiped out the trees in Israel. And then in 1948, when the UN allowed Israel to come back, of course, under persecution and struggles, they began to cultivate the land. They drained all their swamps, so they eradicated malaria. And now Israel, as Isaiah has said, has begun to bud. And uh, everywhere you go in Israel, there's something growing there, uh, even to the, the northern borders of the Negev, the desert in the south. And it's very impressive. It's, it's not the prophecy has not fully been fulfilled, but it's coming. Uh, I showed you pictures of um, En Gedi, which looks like an airbrush of a tropical forest. Okay, it's, it's insane how beautiful it is. But God is promising something like that in the land. And with that, with the renewing of the land itself, the people will, will be renewed and there will be joy and gladness, he says, thanksgiving and singing. And so the point here is that God did not, you know, sort of pluck Abraham out from among all the peoples of the world just to cast him off. He didn't do that. He, he's going to be the hero of the story. He's going to be the one that sustains them, even through their rebellion and everything else. They, they're, they're his people. Nothing I can do about it. He says, listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. Notice the plurality. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait upon me, and my arm they will trust. You guys, this is, can only be a product of the gospel. I know that, I hear a lot that God commissioned the Jews to be a light to the world. 
I'm actually not familiar with a single passage in the Old Testament that commissioned Israel to be evangelistic. I hear prophecies in the Old Testament speaking of Messiah who will be a light to the nations. I hear David saying that he will share the goodness of God to everyone. But there's no instruction that I know of from God that Israel will be a witness to the nations. Now, their, their presence there and definitely a unique people and people group with peculiar laws and things. Of course, they stood out and they were peculiar to other people, but I don't find instruction anywhere else. That doesn't come until Matthew 28. And then the gospel goes forth to all nations. And then we have people from all those nations beginning to be awakened to the God of the Bible and then find salvation in him. This is a product of the gospel. No Gentiles were waiting on him until the gospel went out. It is interesting here also that God refers to the, the Hebrew people as his people and his nation. He says, my people, my nation. So Israel is a people, uh, wherever you go in the scriptures, is constantly being associated with the land of promise. The land of promise. Okay? They, they belong together. God's promise to Israel is always intertwined to a piece of real estate. Okay? Why he exactly has done that, I, I'm not really sure. Um, but he has, okay? And, uh, and I believe that that's all important because when we look at promises made to Abraham, we see land promises and we see promises of blessing that are unconditional. But then when we get to the law, we see a condition attached to the things given to Moses and the people of Israel. The, the land is always theirs, but there's a condition of them enjoying it, and that's obedience. Could you... I mean, you think about your own character, the way that you've lived your life. What if all the blessings of God were contingent upon your perfect obedience? How well would you be enjoying those blessings? So if, if God isn't the one that through his Holy Spirit secures your obedience, you're just not going to experience much blessing. And so we come to the, the place of the prophecies referring to the new covenant where God says, I'll put my spirit inside you and I will cause you to walk in my, you know, my, my edicts, my decrees, and the rest. So God will actually have to be the one that secures their obedience by his spirit in order for them to enjoy the promises. It's very interesting, huh? But they're always associated together, together. So God says, I want you to pay attention. I want you to consider what I'm going to do. And he refers to the law, which refers to the word of God. It will go out. It'll be accompanied by justice, by righteousness, and salvation. What I love about Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 21 to the end of the chapter, is God associates his salvation with his own righteousness. He said, I've done all of this so that I could demonstrate my own righteousness. Isn't that sweet? He doesn't have to prove anything to us. He just does it to put himself on display, his own justice, his own righteousness. And so when he saves, it's a matter of justice. He could justly condemn us, or through his son, he can justly declare us righteous in his sight. But all of it, either one, which one it is, it's a demonstration of his righteousness. And here it says it's not just to the Jews, but it, again, it's to all peoples, even the coastlands. The coastlands is a reference to islands. Okay, so we're talking about every place that human beings step their foot, his salvation will go there eventually. Okay? And all peoples, not every person, but all peoples will wait upon the Lord. They will trust him. So 
That should serve, I think, as a great comfort to Israel. Because the, 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 he's saying the time is coming where, where that will be the norm on planet Earth. And if the, the people of the world are all waiting upon the Lord and trusting the Lord, how many oppressors will Israel have at that time? They won't. They won't. They'll all be seeking the same God. I'm kind of excited for that one world religion. Aren't you guys? That'll be nice. So, yeah. None to oppress. But there's more on the horizon. He says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. So he says, just pay attention, you guys. I want you to look at the heavens above, the earth beneath, and everybody who dwells on it, and of course, that doesn't trust in me. All of it is going to perish. All of it is going to go away. But my salvation, my righteousness will endure forever. Well, that has to comfort because if his salvation, him saving me, is something that endures all of time and eternity, that means I will be preserved from the destruction of the heavens and the earth and the judgment that follows for the wicked. And I'll be preserved for something. He doesn't say it yet in the text, but he's going to say it. But they'll be preserved from that, and then something else must occur. He says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. That's kind of gross. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Now, verse 7 through 16, it really forms a, a kind of a, not an isolated section, but it's different. And it's all dedicated to why God's people, and it doesn't matter if it's Jewish or Christian, why they should not be afraid of their oppressors. So the oppressor of God's people here is not one person or a particular nation. Uh, the oppressor is every oppressor of God's people throughout all time. Those who oppressed them in the past, which is Egypt, those who will oppress them in their future, like Babylon, and those who will oppress them in the last days under the leadership of, of Antichrist. They should not fear. He says all of them will become worm food or the fodder for moths, but the righteous will endure forever. He says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So in this same section, now we hear the prophet Isaiah speaking up and he, in, in a, a pleading prayer, he calls upon God to repeat his miraculous acts of the past for the sake of Israel of what's coming in the future. Apply your mighty hand again as you did it in the past. Okay? Now Rahab is actually a reference to Egypt. Uh, back in Isaiah 30 verse 7, God applied the, the, the mythical name of a, of a Ugaritic sea monster to Egypt, calling her Rahab Hem Shabeth. So when, as it were, when the sea servant tried to pursue the redeemed of God through the Red Sea, God destroyed it. And he's speaking of the armies of Israel. God's people passed through on dry land. Pharaoh, in his arrogance, took him and his army down in there. And then God said, Whoosh, and then he destroyed the army of Pharaoh and Pharaoh himself. 
So the ransom to the Lord shall return, still Isaiah is speaking, and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and singing shall flee away. Just as, as Israel crossed through the Red Sea, of course, finally made it through the wilderness, they came into their own land. So in the future, uh, Isaiah is anticipating God's faithfulness to once again do something similar But when they're redeemed this time, uh, it will be this national rejoicing in the land. Of course, there was some of that immediately after the Red Sea when when Moriah, uh, Moses' sister, grabbed the tambourine and she led the women in worship. And then Moses has a song, of course, it's recorded for us in the book of Psalms, rejoicing at the Lord's deliverance, this everlasting joy. And then God chimes in again. He says, I, even I, And he who comforts you, and listen to this, who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of man who will be made like grass? Who are you with a God like me that you would be afraid of other men who are just going to die? Have you ever thought about that? It's an interesting statement. Say everyone who trusts in the Lord, they will endure forever. They have everlasting life, but all of the wicked and unbelieving, they will perish So who are we that we should be afraid of a man who will die and be no more? Seeing that you will endure forever with God, why is it that you fear anything in this world? Well, I mean, practically speaking, it's because too much value is placed on this life and we think too little of eternal life with God. Maybe there's a sense of unbelief in there. Materialism, pleasure and comfort, we're quite fond of those things in this life. It's made us weary of moving on to the next. But it's Paul who said to die is gain. He says it's better to move on and be with Christ, but we, we cling to this place. We're afraid of losing it, but the scriptures say we should not be afraid. He says, and you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth. You feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And I love this. God is like, and where is the fury of the oppressor? Our fear, our fear of man must also mean that we've either forgotten, as he says there, you've forgotten your God, or you do not believe what God has done in the past and that he will do it in the future. He created the heavens and the earth. So in other words, if he's able to do something like that, he's able to preserve you in eternity, I think. Because, I mean, fashioning the heavens and the earth is no small feat. What is the fury of man compared to the greatness of God? He says, The captive exiles hasten that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. So we, like the exile in captivity or in prison, we we overly concern ourselves with our current circumstances rather than trust in the Lord who possesses all power. He's delivered in the past, He will deliver in the future. He says, and I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. Notice this isn't something he said that I've done. This is something that I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. I put my word in your mouth. That is to say, he's put his truth in them in order to know it. And, and, and to be assured by it and to communicate it to others. And then he says that he's covered them in the shadow of his 
hands. Why? Well, in order to protect them. When he destroys the current heavens along with the earth and the wicked and to ensure that they will inherit the new heavens and the new. See, they're laying, he says, covered you in the shadow of my hands that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth. He's saying, this is something I'm planning to do. So earlier in verse six, he said, I'm going to destroy it all. And here he's saying, I'm making new ones. Now, later on, he just comes out and says it. Okay. Heaven and earth will go away. Behold, new heavens, new earth, wherein only righteousness dwells. So he's preserving, he's promising his people who are going through persecution, who are facing all of these trials. Not only will I deliver you, I'm going to bring you into a whole new creation. And the wicked, they won't be present. Everything will be completely different. A whole new order of things, a different kind of creation. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Do you love the imagery there? That a a cup, as if it were filled with the wrath of God, was passed to Israel, and they drank the dregs to the last drop. That does not sound pleasant at all. By the time Israel repents, at which time will God will restore them, they will have fully consumed the contents of the cup of his fury. Yeah. Every oppressor of Israel, the scriptures tell us, was ordained by God to chase them back to himself. He had them oppressed so they would repent and seek after him. But it seems historically that the more that they are oppressed, the more rebellious Israel becomes. And it has left her spiritually dead, which remains to this day. They're still drinking the dregs, and and they will continue to guzzle until the very last drop when God's righteousness is complete when it comes to those people. He says, there's no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. Israel is in this lamentable condition where there's nobody among them that can stand up and lead them into any kind of you know, spiritual revival. He says, these two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? He says, your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They're full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So Israel is at a a spiritual state where they can just do nothing. They're just like captives. Therefore, Please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. This is pure mercy. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. So the day is coming when the blindness spoken of in Romans chapter 11 will be removed from Israel His divine chastisement will be removed forever. Of course, that will only occur when Israel comes to faith in Christ. He will remove his fury from them. And then, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. And you have laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over. So he's actually using 
something uh, that actually occurred in northern Israel when the Assyrians went through. It's all throughout the writings of the Assyrians. They would take the bodies of those they conquered and they would, they would lay them out in the streets and use them as their pavement to mock and ridicule and to intimidate anybody that would oppress them. It's crazy. God says, I'm going to take my fury away from you and I'm going to force it upon those that have afflicted you, those that oppress. It will be, his wrath will be executed in full. He says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So as soon as God redeems his people and judges their enemies, it'll be a time of liberty and rejoicing. Okay, Because it's not just like when he brings them back, brings them out of Egypt or brings them back from Babylon. Uh, it's, it's not like when he allowed them to go back to the land of Israel in 1948. Uh, nothing like that because this is the end of all oppression. This is a complete renewing. They'll forever dwell in safety. They'll ever be in singing and praise of their God. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. And real quick, there's that one phrase there, redeemed without money. It doesn't mean that the redemption will cost nothing or that it won't come at a price. It just means that it won't occur through the normal exchange of currency. Peter is the one that you know, comes out with this. He says, not with silver or gold corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the way that they're redeemed, just like we are. Her sin will be blotted out and her transgressions will be remembered no more. But all of this, the, this, this, the redemption that is talked about here is contingent upon them embracing and receiving the atonement of Christ through faith, which all follows in the next chapter. He says, now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Basically, what is, in it, what is in it for God that his people are made captives? The people just wail because of their leaders and uh, their oppressors blaspheme the Lord. God wants to bring all of this to an end. Therefore, my people, they shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. So the day is coming when the Jews will not just know what God's name is, which they don't even say. They abbreviate it. They say Yah. But God wants those that will declare his name. Someday they will. But they're not just going to know what his name is. They'll know God. And once again, they'll hear his voice. And he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. What's that translated into in the New Testament? The gospel, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices, they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. I like that. So there's the one coming on the mountains toward the city, and then there's the watchman in the city who is looking to the one coming on the mountains, 
And the one on the mountains is shouting the good news out. And then when they come together, they will celebrate. They'll see eye to eye and they'll rejoice. And together they'll bring the message to God's people. And then at that time, Israel will worship and rejoice without end. He says, break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. This recovery of Israel, as Romans 11 says, it's going to be, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be crazy. The whole world will see it. God's intervention for the sake of his people. It will be more obvious than in Egypt. And his miracles will be more radical. And Israel's oppressors in the end, they're going to be more stubborn than Pharaoh. And so they'll have a more tragic end than Pharaoh. And he says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. This is important. I know it just seems like a, another verse here. In Israel's past, from the time of Jacob, there was never really a complete break with paganism. If you read Genesis closely, you'll see it. As Jacob was fleeing Laban, Rachel stole something. Does anybody remember what it was? She stole the teraphim, the little gods, out of her father's house. Genesis 31, verse 19. Then when Jacob was leaving Shechem, he had his family get rid of all of their idols. Genesis 35, verse 2. Israel had a way of keeping her idols in the shadows even after these great revivals And once their revivals wore off, the idols would come out again in full force, okay? As would God's judgment. And we see that throughout the book of Judges, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. We see that that is what brings the Babylonians in. It occurred time and time again. But in the last days, there will be a complete break for the very first time with all of her pagan roots. Nobody will be hiding a teraphim in their back pocket. Nobody will have something in the closet at home. There will be a complete disdain, a a total repentance from all of their pagan roots. They will be clean. The only thing that will be in the shadows at that time will be holiness. Everything will be pure. He says, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So when Israel is, is finally delivered from her oppressors, it, I love this. It's not going to be a covert operation where they're evacuated quietly and speedily. It's not going to be like a jailbreak or a smash and grab where they come storming in and they go storming out. God is going to come and he's going to conquer their enemies, and the Jews are going to return to their land in peace without any concern for their safety along the way. As we looked at in the chapters previous, all of their needs will be provided. Some people have said, well, this is fulfilling 1948. But as we mentioned, when Israel was granted permission to go back to Israel, they went completely empty-handed. Many, many died along the way. Okay? It's probably me. Yeah. So they'll be safe, they'll be provided for because God will be their provider. He will be their guard all around. Nothing will harm them. It's amazing. Now it's worth mentioning that in the last days, the enemy of the Jews will be the enemy of all who believe. And so God's judgment is going to bring eternal relief to all who trust him 
not just the Jews. Okay? And another thing that is very interesting, as Israel suffers persecution for her rebellion, the church suffers persecution because of her righteousness. It's one of the huge differences between the church and Israel. Israel is promised prosperity because of faithfulness. The church is promised persecution because of faithfulness. We're very, very different than them. Speaking to the church in Thessalonica, uh, a persecuted church, listen to what Paul said. 2 Thessalonians 1.3. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which also you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. In the end, all the redeemed, Jew and Gentile, will stand together. They'll be safe. Amen. Okay, so next week, as I said, Isaiah 53... Uh, It details both the penal and the vicarious nature of the atonement. So I don't know that we'll finish in one evening. Probably not. Uh, I would really like to explore the theology of that, the implications of it, the value. Uh, It's good for us to understand the atonement. What do you think? Okay. All right. Why don't we stand up and we'll pray. I have one minute remaining. If you have any questions about what we talked about tonight, uh, if you need any prayer, I would love to serve you. So let's pray. Well, Father, I've read enough of other religious books to know that you're unique. Father, the gods change and they're just not trustworthy. Their character is not worth relying upon. But Lord, you, you remain. You love us and you will redeem us, Lord, from the mess that we've made in our own lives and in this world. You have, by your spirit, you've regenerated us. You're sanctifying us. But one day, will be glorified in your presence and will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And as Revelation says, our God will dwell with us. Lord, we can depend on that because your character is, it, it, it endures. You, you cannot lie. You cannot be unfaithful. So Lord, we just praise you and we thank you for that. We can be assured of all that's on the horizon because you've redeemed us. You're, you're orchestrating our lives and our world to your intended end for your glory and for our good. So Lord, help us not to fear. Help us to walk in faith, especially, Lord, when, when we're in a mess. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.